Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal. Or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life... Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name's Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we're here in the year 2020 because the actor Thomas Hanks is still making ocean movies. He is indeed. Yeah, and we're celebrating another turn around the sun for him too uh, right last week his birthday turned, was last week i'm seeing here that he he went from being ageless to ageless he turned 64 that's great i really he's still like a at a ripe young age he beat coronavirus and had a birthday that's way more than i've done this year he could make another 40 films i would say he probably will if we, if we get another 40 hanks films we're getting at least eight more ocean films because fine folks we're here to talk about the new movie Greyhound, an Apple TV Plus World War II war film where Hanks plays the skipper of a mid-Atlantic USS destroyer. Um, the titular fight, Greyhound, the eponymous off, Greyhound. Uh-huh, fighting off some U-boats. Um, but the release of this movie this past weekend spurred Noah and I to think about just how much Hanks loves a nautical script. Absolutely. This episode we're calling I'm the Captain Always, uh, the nautical films of Tom Hanks. That's right. His uh, his oceanic interests begin as early as Splash in 1984. Uh, they continue with uh, what I would designate as clearly nautical films in Castaway and Captain Phillips. You want to tell about the fifth that you argued for? I would argue that Sleepless in Seattle, as it is set primarily on a houseboat, does make Tom Hanks uh, and his character of Sam Baldwin the captain of the boat they're living in. See, he's the captain now. Don't you think Jonah's the captain of the boat? Even it does ha- seem... even has a nautical name, Jonah. Yeah, he's maybe first mate. All right, and fair enough. He's sort of like uh, Chief Brody trying to like call back to the mainland, being like, hey, we got <laughs> trouble out here in these waters. So yeah, great excuse to to watch some classic Hanks. Um, just to shout out the streaming locations, if you want to catch up with Castaway, it's on HBO, and Sleepless in Seattle is on Netflix. Before we proceed to our reviews, we want to tell you that, as always, Be Real is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, where you can find our wonderful sibling shows like The Fourth Wall, The Discourse, Deep Focus, and more. Find that feed wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and please do leave us a kind rating or comment. We're always happy to hear from you. Noah Ballard, what order do you want to go in? We, we must do chronological. We have to? We must. 
All right, so that means in order, folks, we're going to do Splash, Sleepless, Castaway, Captain Phillips, Greyhound. In 1984, Splash is a Ron Howard film. Uh, Ron Howard, of course. Uh, Happy Days alum, uh, Beautiful Mind, Paula 13. But Splash, high concept, Brian Grazer property here. A young man is reunited with a mermaid who saved him from drowning as a boy falls in love with her not knowing who or what she is and of course tom hanks in the lead along with daryl hannah as madison the aforementioned mermaid parenthetically trivia people cite this movie as the reason that madison such a popular name for babies at this time really there's a whole spate of madisons born a couple of years ahead of us i would say um, this is Hanks's first starring role. Um, he'd been in He Knows You're Alone a couple years before. He was on TV with Bosom Buddies. Um, but yeah, this is he's first build man, and it's what a it's a very I'll say what I have to say about the film later. But it is a convincing arrival. I mean, you see him and you're like, oh yeah, it's Tom Hanks. I mean, retroactively in our case, but you're like, he's fun, he's confident, he is able to play both drama and comedy. He is so like he's so young. Tom, young Tom Hanks is so like cute and bouncy. Yeah, for sure. Oh, he looks like he's one of those like blow up things outside a car dealership in some of these scenes. I would also say that this sets the precedent too of Tom Hanks in his nautical roles showing how supply chains and Tom Hanks like just don't work well together and cause the foil of what, whatever the main plot is. Is that three of these movies? That is oh, absolutely. Because he's part of the supply chain in wartime in Greyhound. Absolutely. So he's, only yes. Sleepless, which parenthetically we should not have done. <laughs> is, uh, is yeah, we should, we should narrow the category down to Tom Hanks's nautical films in which shipping plays a weird large That's role. That's fucking wild. Did you just realize it that is. right now? Or no, I, I, I've been sitting on this this little nugget for, for days. Wow. Yeah. You sullied, no pun intended, your own category. By I including. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, but yeah, he's the, what, the vice president along with his ne'er-do-well brother, John Candy, of this small, like, it's like a food shipping business, and they're, like, trying to get yeah, a like contract. Fruit, with a, like, fresh fruit they're bringing in. Uh, yeah. And they, like, yeah, they distribute to local restaurants. Uh, and things like that, and grocery stores. So there's this pretty goofy, parenthetically, like, kind of gross prologue uh, where Tom Hanks is just, like, on a ferry with his, you know, sort of 1960s, 1950s parents, and they're just, like, going somewhere, and his brother, who will be John Candy, is a real piece of shit, and he, like, has this thing where he, like, throws change on the deck, and then he uses picking up change as an excuse to, like, look up girls' dresses, which is kind of icky. It's an icky way to start this movie. Indeed. Anyway, but your your attention is quickly drawn away from that to Tom Hanks, like, standing on the side of that boat and being like, what's that shimmering in the water? And, like, suddenly he's in the water, and he's hanging out with this sort of young mermaid lady and they're having a great time and then he gets fished out and his parents like thought he almost drowned and he's like no there was that mermaid but they're like yeah whatever and mm-hmm. then yeah cut to him as a late 20s early 30s something 
it's amazing how much of uh tom hanks's career he's like in his 30s oh, it kind yeah. of starts here and continues for the next 30 years and then one day accidentally from out of the blue it happens Just looking at her is pure ecstasy. Just touching her is a lifelong fantasy come true. Just being in love with her plunges him into a wondrous world of rapture and enchantment. Just one problem stands in his way. A little secret she's trying to keep all to herself. There is a mermaid in New York City. How come she's got legs? I'm just wondering what you think of why Tom Hanks has made so many nautical films. What's his deal? We should have addressed this at the top. I think he's he's drawn to the sea just the way that Madison is drawn to uh, his driver's license photo. Uh, I don't know. That's a great question. I really do feel like, especially on film, like there's such a, a long legacy of the sea as like you know antagonist to a narrative i mean we've even done a lot of our categories have been sea related we did like two submarine ones and a you're real dick the sea and you know some of my favorite movies too uh things yeah. that we haven't talked about even or uh, we've done multiple shark categories shark categories um my take is that he obviously loves, and he's even become more explicit about this in interviews the older that he's gotten, but he really favors a ostensibly ordinary character in a wildly extraordinary, uncontrollable circumstance. And I think he keeps returning to the sea because the ocean presents so many larger-than-life, uncontrollable circumstances. Like, it's an easy way for what Hollywood tells us is an everyman to interface with these like almost mythic um, ideas, whether mermaids or a Robinson Crusoe type situation or piracy. Well, that's like the interesting thing I, I think about early Hanks's career is like a lot of these movies are like big premise movies. Like Money Pit is like, what if we buy a house we can't afford and everything falls apart? Yeah. You know? And like Big, of course, and The Burbs and Turner and Hooch, even Joe versus the Volcano. Until like maybe Sleepless in Seattle, and we'll get there in a second. But that sort of turns the tide of like him as a real person in the real world. In this one, he's still kind of like the Prince Charming character in a fairy tale. I think I would tag it one year earlier. I think it's League of Their Own. It's almost like he needs to find the right directors, but also gain enough power himself where a comedic movie is not a pigeonholed, light comedic movie where he can actually bridge this gap between comedy and drama throughout the 90s that like makes him an unassailable star. But yeah, at the beginning of his career, it's just like, what, like you said, um, the, they're so premise-driven that they're, they're just kind of inherently like flimsy. Right. And it kind of plays that funny Tom Hanks game. I mean, like you can play that game for every Tom Hanks movie, but like, when does it get to the screaming part? <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> and this one I think sells into that pretty quickly, though 
it has more it, the the tension with that is a little bit more sustained than you would expect for such like a silly like disney premise of a, a film um can we unpack too the idea of like these movies also hang in the like weird bit parts that famous people end up playing for as little as 30 seconds and as much as like being a supporting character in this movie. But in this one, it's Eugene Levy as sort of this like mad scientist. I don't know. It almost felt like a little back to the future where he's like, I believe mermaids have existed for a thousand years. And Tom yeah, Hanks just happens to be. Dick. He's the yeah, antagonist. He's also a dick very much cares about his you know his academic career uh but he then bumps into them when he's when tom hanks is out on this boat uh going out to martha's vineyard or wherever their paths begin to cross is this a funny movie Noah? i think it thinks that like the sexist humor is really funny and kind of leans on that a little bit, maybe too much uh, with a 2020 read. But I would say maybe no. Like, it's a surprisingly unfunny romantic comedy. So these guys, it's uh, Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, uh, work together on Night Shift, the prior Ron Howard comedy, uh, Gung Ho, Spies Like Us, City Slickers, League of Their Own, City Slickers 2, Forget Paris. So like liar, liar. So like a lot of really like big movies, but like also a lot right. of misses in there. Um, I think the funniest part of, parts of this movie though are the literal fish out of water. Daryl Hannah like going around New York and kind of having those like Home Alone two kind of scenes where she like hangs out in an electronics store for eight hours and like learns how to speak English, but when she tries to pronounce her own fish name, all the TVs explode. I agree. I also though I think that the writing around like that's a very it's a stock comedy premise to the point of being lazy. It doesn't other than the the fish scream. It has so little to do with mermaids. Like it's it's such like um, Kimmy Schmidt comedy. It's the same way a, the woman would behave if she had traveled through time or had been in a box for twenty years. You know, it just has nothing to do with her being a mermaid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and other than the last shot of the movie, we really don't get a sense of anything about you know what has she been up to the past twenty five years, right? You know, like, is she part of some society? Does she have, like, some sort of overarching life goal of some kind? It seems like sort of a curiosity that brings her to shore. But it's weird to me that this movie never really answers the question of, like, why has this never happened before? And, like, why is it so special now? Yeah, it's a... I mean, she's a, unfortunately, a manic pixie dream fish person. I mean, she just like shows up and he's just like, I love how liberated and naked you are. And then she, no exaggeration, is like, let's kiss and let's fuck for 48 hours and that'll be fun. And Alan is like, that's great. Um, and then she learns English in 10 seconds. Um, but also it's like the idea of mermaids, it's like something that in, is in Western culture because of like horny sailors, right? Like it is an inherently not super... <laughs> feminist yeah well no it like speaks to a belief too that 
like the there are like sirens calling men to their death like sailors to their deaths on rocks and stuff right. and like blaming even though women are like entirely unpresent in this workspace that somehow their wiles like led to the drowning of men totally it's pretty yeah it's also like a how ariel and little mermaid has been called into question about the way women are portrayed and what they desire and like what brings them to to shore so to speak yeah how about some dudes get in the fucking ocean for once grow some gills i guess this movie is sort of saved by tom hanks's final gesture perhaps perhaps and it gets a little like ete2 can i yeah. say oh yeah one of the things i remembered from one of the main things i remembered from seeing this as a child which was the only time i saw it was the imagery of madison in the experimental tank as like her fins are eroding and i like i've yeah. seen too many beta fish die gruesomely for that yeah. not to i've seen too many like me. county fair goldfish like in their final days of life <laughs> yeah uh, it's upsetting that's the et part for sure yeah that part's pretty upsetting and then there's also like that mixed with the slapstick humor of like leading up to that uh, Eugene Levy like squirting people with water by mistake is like his what? big goof. <laughs> and so this this movie tonally like doesn't make a lot of sense and like really doesn't feel like something that on IMDb its first genre should be called comedy. So here's how we rate films on the podcast you're listening to. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. Splash? I think Splash is more of a thud to me. Oh my god! <laughs> and uh, bad, bad. You you are reading New York Daily News reviews from the eighties, right? Or is that your real opinion? That does sound like if Splash didn't make a lot of money, which unfortunately it made like a fuck ton of money, uh, it would have said Splash more like Kaplunk. Right. <laughs> um. Ooh, this is a tough one because I was going to say bad good. Like, I think it's fun enough. But it also, if I'm talking practicality, we've we've hit that point with certain movies where it's like, do I ever need to watch Splash again as long as I live? And I think I don't. So I think bad, bad is fine. Yeah. No, Splash only exists if you're doing a retrospective on the nautical roles of Tom Hanks. You might have fun with it, listener, but I think we're done with Splash. Yeah. 
But let's fast forward here to 1993, 10 years later. Tom Hanks is, is, is cresting on the wave of romantic leading men. Mm-hmm. Teams up with Nora Ephron for what will be a series of very successful films uh, in Sleepless in Seattle. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Sleepless in Seattle. You called a radio station? Christmas Eve. He phones in one of those radio call-in shows. He tells them that his dad needs a new wife. And the shrinkette practically forces a guy onto the phone and says, Tell me, what was so special about your wife? Well, Dr. Marshall Fields I think it was like magic. magic. Sleepless in Seattle? That's what she called him on the show because he can't sleep. And now 2,000 women want his number. Here's Sleepless in Seattle. You're the most attractive man I ever laid ears on. The guy could be a crackhead. Actually, he sounded nice. You know it's easier to be killed by a terrorist than it is to get married over the age of 40. That's not true. That statistic is not true. That's right. It's not true. But it feels true. Sandy has a girlfriend, Glenda. She's a weightlifter. It's not like her neck is bigger than her head. No, 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 no. I'm not asking you to set me up. What about Walter? Walter and I are engaged. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man, 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 It's also very much like a look at like Norman Rockwell America and these like I like sort of, you know, um, Home Alone, John Hughes kind of holiday get togethers. And then a real look at like what it's like to lose a partner and like the trauma and the, the grief around something like that in a way that is a really bittersweet opening uh I mean, there's no major trauma at the beginning of Splash. No. Um, although I don't know why he jumped off that boat. There could have been something going on there. The setup for this movie is that Tom Hanks plays Sam Baldwin, who is a Chicago architect who, in the opening moments of the film, has lost his wife to cancer and totally despondent about it. Sam and his eight-year-old son, Jonah, move out to Seattle to a houseboat for a for a change of scene. Um and after about a year and a half, Jonah decides to call into a like a nighttime self-help radio show. A show to, maybe like a Fraser Crane show? Not dissimilar, yes. Um, right. And he basically says, my dad needs a new wife. He seems so sad. He needs to, to find a new partner. Uh, and the host, through some finagling, uh, gets Sam on the phone and uh, in a scene that I think is impressively sort of slow and savored. Like if that scene is not good, this movie doesn't work at all, Um, but it's really drawn out. And he basically, if you don't know Sleepless in Seattle describes uh, all the different ways in which he, he loved his deceased wife in a way so romantic. It catches the attention of uh, women around the country and especially Meg Ryan, who is a Baltimore Sun writer um, who is driving south to celebrate Christmas with her Yeah, fiance. they're between the two families, Christmas, dinner, his family and her family. Right, his being uh, Bill Pullman, this, her, the wet blanket, but well-meaning um, guy, co-worker that she's about to marry. And yeah, you get the scene of Meg Ryan, who's about to start this... This life, this maybe sort of boring, settling for it 
life. And then she hears this guy talking about true love and wonders to herself, is this a sign? I think one of the brilliances of Nora Ephron, who is really like unpacking what human connection looks like under like, I guess, capitalism in the idea of, you know, commuting via car, like they need two cars to get to for these two people to get to these two different places. And the reason that she hears this guy on this commercial broadcasted radio show is on the radio and then she pulls into this diner to stop and the women there are also listening to this show just sort of showing not only how like that monoculture existed i guess in the early 90s but also like how the second impulse of people listening to something happening on the radio is then commenting on it to themselves Mm, mm -hmm. and like so you know this can sort of be transported to like oh i can't believe like this twitter fight is going on online but it's the two people talking about it who were like reading it not the people who are actively involved and sort of i really think it's interesting how efron you know even 30 years ago was able to see like how technology and how capitalism was sort of going to push forward the way we discuss things anything Yeah, and how it would find us alone and how we would think that we knew something about somebody through media. And we feel more connected by listening to someone grieve on the radio, but we are not any more connected to them. Mm -hmm. And maybe how that can drive us to insanity. Yeah, the behavior of Annie Reed in this movie. So, like, I'm not one of those people. I know when we, like, unpack an old movie, we love to take the, like, well, isn't this creepy? Or, like, this doesn't seem appropriate. But um, I I don't. How much does the fact that Annie Reed is hiring private detectives to take pictures of Sam for like a never going to be published newspaper feature affect your enjoyment of the rom-com that she's behaving so creepily? Well, I thought of you specifically because you've pointed out in the past the idea of how sometimes creepy scenes like her filling out the paperwork to get the private detective to take pictures of him as a quote-unquote source is like scored with that like getting into mischief music. Caper music. Caper music that makes it sound okay. But I think if you score that with like a couple of violins in a minor key that you have Netflix true crime on your hands. Yeah, it's true. It's really true. It is pretty creepy that she goes through that out of that obsession. I think Efron is trying to make the case of like, look how far society and this idea of love has pushed this woman to take these extraordinary acts. But there definitely is an undertone of a professional person abusing their position and their whatever to pursue someone without their knowledge. I couldn't stop thinking about how, um, according to this timeline, I think Wire creator David Simon would be working at the Baltimore Sun concurrently with this person doing fake love features. Yeah, Rosie O'Donnell is the one who's working on the actual uh, yeah, Wire-level drug deal in, in downtown Baltimore. It is kind of funny, you're right. Um, um, and of course, it couldn't be a movie about Seattle unless David Hyde Pierce was in it. Yeah. Same year. Frasier begins, I think. 
Well, I think also what what this movie succeeds in doing is putting Tom Hanks in a place where he has that super fun monologue up front about the dead wife and everything he misses about her. And then just sort of being in the, that like the world's going to happen to him and he's going to like hold it up to the camera so you can see it. And he's going to make a funny, like, what does this mean face? And then he's going to smile at the end. Mm -hmm. And I think movies that have those factors in it are generally like pretty easy to watch. Um, I really wanted to talk about the Greg Kinnear school of when you break up with me, I'll understand. (laughs) (laughs) Pullman gets it, man. He even has the great, the great line. um, What is it? Uh, Marriage is hard enough without entering with such low expectations. That is a great piece. of That's an Efron special right there. Yeah. I love Rob Reiner, too, in this movie. Oh, my God. Biggest laugh of the movie. He's the Bruno Kirby of this film. 100%. Um, and I think my biggest laugh of the movie is where he's, like, describing 90s dating to Sam, who, like, hasn't been out there in a bit, obviously. And he's, like, describing the steps of it. And he goes, then you start necking. This could go on for years. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so funny. Um, yeah, the, the supporting cast. I love... I love like Victor Garber um, playing his friend who comes to visit uh, with Rita Wilson, Hanks's real life uh, spouse. Um, but like Victor Garber, like attempting to bro down with Tom Hanks is like very funny. Cause like I associate him with like being such a sophisticated theatrical presence and for yeah. Victor Garber to be like, uh, women will never understand what dirty dozen can mean to a man. <laughs> it's like, right. Yeah. <laughs> He's still torn, though. Well, I guess he, he it hasn't happened to him yet, but he's torn by the future sense of not designing the Titanic well enough to sustain the impact of an iceberg. Yeah, do you think Garber's out there checking the uh, flotility of the houseboat? Yeah, he's just, like, outside, like, pushing it down, seeing how buoyant it is. It's made of plastic, sir, and I assure you. <laughs> how cold do these waters get? <laughs> Can you spin any more... Uh fun bs for us about how this is a nautical film and the water is important well i think one of the sort of key turning point slash key creepy moments in this movie is when meg ryan shows up to the house and she sees tom hanks and jonah going out in the like on the canoe into the into the bay there like west seattle i think yeah it's a nice, you know, sort of look at the city, uh, but also like an interesting missed connection moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I don't think this movie shares a lot of DNA with the Captain Phillipses of the world, it's if true. I'm if I'm being honest. He admits um, it. But it does have that like wife who kind of looms large, even though she's only in the beginning <laughs> for one scene thing about it. Oh, the poor, the poor, like abandoned wives and girlfriends of these movies. I we swear. have to do a, we have to rate our, our dead or missing or at home wives sure. ranking at the end of this. Okay. I'll write it down. Um, I like this movie. I like sleepless in Seattle. I just think like, it's kind of the reverse of when Harry met Sally, like instead of the chance encounters where you see the ways in which passing time has informed them, which is like right. so charming in that movie. There's like, there's not, there's not a wasted 
30 seconds of that movie. Yeah. Well, and this, this is like, it's exactly the opposite of when Harry met Sally. Cause it's like, instead of two people who are weirdly close, it's two people who weirdly don't know each other that well. It's an entire movie of negative space, basically. Right. <laughs> what um, if we didn't occupy any of the same scenes, which is exactly what happens? I think it's admirable the movie tries to overcome that premise-driven challenge. I think there is like a chunk of the movie where like Meg Ryan just goes to Seattle to watch him, which in addition to being creepy is also pretty slow. Um, so yeah, it's just... I don't know. I don't mean to put it up against an all-time great genre-defining movie, but it's it's not the best, but it's good. It's, I would say it's pretty good, um, and I think that makes it a good good because it's easy to watch, and there are so many good lines in here. And, of course, like seeing a early entry into that like Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks thing is interesting just to sort of examine their chemistry. Yeah, you're a big You've Got Mail person, right? I love You've Got Mail. Do you take... Well, it's one of the main reasons I work in book publishing. Wow. Do you take YGM over SIS? Yeah. Okay. YGM for, YGM for sure. Okay. Kinda... But YGM may not be a better movie. We'll get to it one of these days. One of these days. When we do what? The bit parts of Dave Chappelle? Star is Born, Con Air, and YGM? <laughs> wow. Incredible. You've done it. <laughs> We've already done Connor. We can't do it. Um, Movies in which Barnes and Noble plays a starring role. I think Sleepless in Seattle is also a good good. I just, it's like the second time in five years that I've watched it. And like both times I've wanted a little more. Both times I've basically wanted to watch When Harry Met Sally. Yeah, that's totally fine. We want to go to 2000 and Castaway? I would love to to get to Castaway. I got to tell you up front with Castaway, you know, troubles afoot when during the title sequence over that dusty Texas road, the word cast appears first and then away slightly after. Castaway came out in 2000. This is arguably the peak of Hanks. He's riding as high as he's ever ridden off of multiple Oscars and Apollo 13 and Saving Private Ryan and Toy Story um, and I think that this is, uh, this is weirdly, it's kind of the end of that couldn't possibly go higher run. Like, I think this is I'm, him touching the ceiling basically. But Castaway like wouldn't have had anyone other than Tom Hanks, like as the star of it, like you couldn't possibly cast it with anyone else and have it be as whatever it is. Let's talk um, about this at the front because so. If you don't know what Castaway is, it's very easy to sum up. He's uh, he plays Chuck, a he's like a systems manager for FedEx, traveling around the world to make sure things go smoothly. Um, he's real busy. He has a decent relationship with his partner, played by Helen Hunt, but he's too busy. I was surprised this time, like how not cute and like perfect it is. He doesn't have like a lot of likability. In the beginning. No, he's pretty unlikable at the top. Like, and even in there's like a scene where they're exchanging Christmas gifts. It's a him and Helen Hunt is the, is the, the, well, I guess almost fiance where he like gives her a series of gag gifts and she like doesn't really appreciate them. And then he gives her like a smaller, perhaps engagement ring box. Right. And he's like, we'll open it on New Year's Eve, which is presumably when he gets back. But unfortunately, the plot of the movie Castaway gets in the middle 
of him returning to Helen Hunt for New Year's Eve. Two more minutes. Thanks. Hey. Oh, my. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I love you. I love you, too. I'll be right back. Fire! Engine one! I think one of the more compelling, like, plane crash scenes i've ever i still have ever seen on on film i was in both sarah my fiance and i were like just in stunned silence basically at how Semechus pulled off that scene yeah and speaking of like a scene that really lingers like the plane crash event itself you know I mean, it'll speak to that goofy Denzel Washington movie that he'll make in a couple years after this. Flight, uh, what's yeah. that one called? Flight. Flight, of course. Um, but yeah, he really gets that down. The only part where I think it's a little goofy in the whole sequence of him, the plane crashing. And then, of course, the scene doesn't end. And then he's in the in the water and this raft that's like half deflated. Um, yeah, as the black waves just tower over him. Oh my god! But I think the scare the the part where I was like a little like okay maybe digital will catch up uh, one of these days was the plane engine exploding. Sure, yeah. Um, it didn't bother me just because I felt like there were so many other incredible touches. Like when he, when Chuck, you know, is able to extricate himself from the wreckage and finally get to the surface, it's just like the it's like the metal of the plane is screaming. Oh just my like God, in yeah. the night and the stuff he does with sound in this movie the scene that you referred to earlier i i wrote down too where they're exchanging the gifts in the car and he's gotta go and i think the standard directorial instinct would be for that to be a quiet scene you roll up the windows maybe there's a little music on the radio they're have they're having their last exchange zemeckis leaves the windows down and you hear the engine the entire time like yes. even if that scene is nice it's just like this man you know his decision is to leave and the clock is ticking and he's going to leave. I think it's very intentional that Zemeckis focuses so much on in this world that he has before the plane crashes. It's so populated with ambient noise. Yeah. And then when he gets to the island, like the only noise is water oh and then weather. There's no music for 90 minutes. Yeah, there's no music until he's like gotten off the water. Right. And then Alan Silvestri just like plays the tear jerking <laughs> hits. Exactly. Um, okay, but let's wrap around to what you were bringing up. I started to think like who else could play the role of the person on the island that you want to watch. And on the first, on, you know, a real cursory digging into that thought is like well lots of movie stars could we want to watch movie stars do stuff like it would be fine but then i started to think about it and it's like well we actually watched leo dicaprio do this in the revenant and it was no fucking fun um a lot of movie stars would be too prideful to express the like really kind of banal childlike pain of like working through these basic like how do i get water or like can i even walk on the beach um, or like it hurts just to haul myself from one side of the cave to the other. And Hanks gives you such immediacy with, um, I don't know, how ordinary, how breakable he is. Yeah, I don't know that you'd get a lot of other actors at this time, at least, who were willing to act opposite of volleyball. Right. You know, and he actually, a... he like sells Wilson. Like, you know, the thing where like people are like faking a phone call in movies 
and they like ask yeah. a question, but then they don't leave any space for the answer. Like when he asked Wilson a question, Chuck falls silent for like five seconds. Wilson is talking to him and it's a great actorial touch. Right. And it really carries the narrative of like the, I don't know, the fourth act of this movie where he, it sort of is brought up that he like had a, a his this moment of grief where he gave up. And like Wilson is sort of the voice in his head telling him to keep going, which is sort of moving and meaningful uh, leading up to, you know, getting him off this island. You have to love the puzzle of it all of just like watching him as a mammal do like the smartest and the dumbest things of like, yeah, your big human brain is what tells you to climb to the top of the island to see what's around. And in that moment, you can kind of be like, yeah. Humans are good. Like, we're smart. And then he just, like, walks out on the razor rocks to get a crab, and his feet are fucked up forever. And you're like, humans are not. We make the worst decisions. For sure. I wonder this time, too, if we can dig maybe a little bit deeper here. If this time when I watched it, I didn't get a certain read about just, like, empathy for people who are homeless and Mm. the idea of... The Okay, these are the things that my old life left me with, a specific set of skills and a few objects around me. And I am just at the mercy of what I can find, where I can position myself against the elements, and what trash I can forage. And I did think it was a really interesting... His mix of the FedEx box materials with the natural world to me is like so... There's something so like intentionally unsexy about it. Mm-hmm. Like his outfit by the end and his hair and his beard, they like weren't fashionable. They were just like what he had time to do and the utility of it. And that to me is so interesting to like to think of the you never have to ask the question because he's like a white guy on an island. But like are, is there ever a moment where the people don't want to interact with him on the boat because they're just like afraid of who this person has become? That's a great read. I didn't think about that. But uh, this is the argument that like the, the actual thing that American cities can do is permanent supportive housing, right? It's like, how the fuck are you supposed to figure out anything if you don't have a roof over your head? Like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs just says, no, you can't. Right. Or food. Like he can't even think clearly like without water and food. Right. And the way he is able to plan things only gets serious after four years of foraging and like Mm -hmm. figuring out how to live. So to imagine that like, you know, one night of whatever is going to help with anything is so like you need people to teach you how to do the things. That to me was the scariest part of this movie is that he has no one to teach him how to do the things. And that just speaks to how important it is to like have society, but also have those personal relationships of the people supporting you. And I think the movie's aware of that because there's this awkward moment before Hanks's plane goes down where he's talking to a coworker and the coworker's like, he, he, he didn't, hadn't even confided in him. He had overheard him telling one of the flight attendants on the plane about his die, his wife dying of cancer And Tom Hanks kind of like fumbles this, well, I know this doctor who worked with people I know and she was fine and I'll help you with this stuff. And it's like, guy, there's there's more to like what a relationship looks like than just simply how useful you can be. Totally. Yeah. That's okay. So you raise an interesting question. Is this a morality tale 
like a like a Ebenezer Scrooge style rift where like the thing that you've done bad is the thing that you will be punished for in these extraordinary circumstances or is it good because it's sort of not really that like he's not a bad guy it's you're not like encountered with all of his crippling flaws he's just like somebody who's a little too involved in his work and then when he gets to the island he like any of us has nothing to do but reflect on the bad things that he's he's done and he's left with the tools he has what's your take on that is he being punished i think it goes back to the goofy point that i was making at the top that this movie is not called castaway it's called cast away and it's sort of like how this man deals with the world when the world decides that he's not part of it anymore. And I think when you read it with that lens of like, he's being put in time out from the world. It's such an interesting look at, you know, not only questions of, you know, like what do you need to survive every day? And like, what would I do if my plane crashed and I ended up on this Island? But like, what would you do if you're metaphorical, you were metaphor, you were like metaphorically cast away right. and like, how could you forage for yourself? I mean, I think it, it starts a lot of interesting conversation, especially like in like a genre like this of things like how will millennials survive? Like when cell phones no longer work, there's like a book called severance, uh, that came out last year that won some awards just about like how people behave when they just can't use their phones or the internet anymore mm. and how weird that gets. And this movie it, like feels in conversation, but it feels like it's saying more about what you and I do every day and like how precious maybe that is or how futile that is. Wrapping around to a rating. Um, I was, I mean, I know we actually have some prologue and some epilogue, which are, that's, those aren't even the right words. Cause we basically have a, fir- a first and a final act of the movie to, to assess a little bit. But this movie was, uh, in fact, much better than I remembered it. I think Hanks is fantastic. I think the direction is at times just like unfucking believable how, um, how abrasive it can be, but also how patient it can be in transitioning from the crash to the island to the re-entry and, um, Man, it's really like Zemeckis finishing out his 90s, too, is like somebody also right at the top of his game before he gets super weird again with Tom Hanks in tow. (laughs) Um, Right. But yeah, I think this movie is like great. I think it's a good good for sure. Yeah, and I think this movie, you know, believes in a hopeful universe, too, which makes it more palatable like the revenant as you spoke about earlier i think is a little bit more fatalistic in what it believes that you know at least the character at the forefront of it deserves or something but this one you kind of know that justice is coming in some weird ways but also that doesn't mean you always get what you want right but i do think the movie does kind of stumble when it returns to land um something that i think maybe Captain Phillips improves upon, uh, which will be our next movie. But the idea of like, you don't need to get into the, oh, Helen Hunt's married to Chris Noth now. And she like, doesn't have the heart to see you in person. But when she does see you in person, of course the romance is still there, but of course they can't be together. And of course he has to return this fucking package. And of course, like maybe he's now met his, like the end of 500 days of summer it's like oh well summer's gone but august is in a pickup truck and her her box has those wings that saved your life right right 
I didn't have like a big problem with it, but yeah, I, the movie gets a little, it gets a little bog. There's there's that one last conversation with his friend played by character actor Nick Searcy where he just like describes um, what it's like to be talking now after he lost his mind on the island and almost hung himself. And that sort of like two to three minute monologue is like, we could have just, we got that from the movie. We didn't have to hear Chuck say that. Part of me wonders like what this movie looks like if you just clip off like that last act and oh, maybe entirely? trim down. Yeah. Like what if the movie like really picks up in the car with Helen Hunt and then him getting on the plane and then the plane going down and then maybe it ends with him on a plane again and like landing at that party for him. It's not a perfect movie. I do think it's amazing though. What do you, what, are you rating a good, good? I think it is like really good though. Like as critical as I'm being of the of its its uh bulkiness, I really think it's great and I don't know why people don't talk about it more. Uh yeah, I good, mean yeah, neither you and I had seen it in forever and I just it has that reputation, you know, of like Wilson and he loses all the weight and his hair gets long and I think people are just like I got to beat on Castaway. I don't need to see Castaway again. And I think what we're telling you is 20 years later, you should recheck in with Castaway. It's amazing. It's also interesting, too, to watch the movie again to see the things, like the little Easter eggs in the beginning of it of, oh, it would be great if he had gone to the dentist earlier. Like, oh, yep. it would have been great if he had taken the pocket knife that was attached to the car keys that he gave Helen Hunt. Don't like, take oh. your shoes off on the plane, John McClane. And you even see like his backpack in the Russia cold open is full of candy bars and a CD player full of Elvis CDs. Yeah. Like if he had just had that backpack with him, he like would have been fine. That's true. <laughs> so now we zoom ahead to 2013 in the movie Captain Phillips, which is directed by Paul Greengrass and inspired by the true story of a 2009 cargo ship hijacking ship was called the marisk alabama um the pirates were from somalia um here captain phillips is played by tom hanks of course and uh Muse, uh the captain of the pirates is played by academy award nominee barkat abdi um where do you want to start with captain phillips well, first off, I wanted to say how disappointing it is that they changed the name of the book for the movie uh, because the original title is A Captain's Duty, Somali <laughs> Pirates, Navy Seals, and Dangerous Days at Sea, which is quite a, quite more uh, compelling, I would say, than simply Captain Phillips. I think a better version of this movie actually is just called... The captain. Dangerous days at sea? No, I think it's called The Captain, and it creates more balance between Musset and Phillips. Um, yeah. Anyway. The second thing, though, is I was going to ask which indulgent director has uh, massaged current American history for their own advantage more, Paul Greengrass or Peter Berg? I think the answer is Peter Berg, but you do make me think about it. The director of Patriot's Day, the Boston bombing movie, uh, whatever that fucking oil rig. Deepwater Horizon, Lone Survivor, The Kingdom. Well, yeah, the answer is Peter Berg because he's made his entire career into this. But Paul Greengrass did make a 9-11 movie, which I still think beyond the subtle illusions in the 25th hour is mostly inexcusable. 
sure. Yeah, Greengrass you would know from... Uh, I guess I still think of him from the Bourne movies, which is kind of what saves right. him for me. But yeah, United 93, Green But then he Zone, did turn 9-11 into a Bourne movie. And 22... Which wasn't as good. No, and 22 July, which was about that Norwegian mass shooter... Didn't see that, of course. But he was just disappointed that the U.S. didn't have another historical terrorist moment, so he had to go to Norway. Oh my god. Okay, so nautical Hanks here. This is this is an interesting performance for me because I think that by this point Hanks has really, really settled into like a self-aware version of like I'm an ordinary American man from a place like oh I don't know Vermont. <laughs> And I'm gonna get on a big boat, and you know what? I am gonna do my job really well, but then something crazy is gonna happen, and you're gonna see what it's like when Tom Hanks is under pressure. Um, and by the time we get to Greyhound, like eight years after that, it's like Jesus, man, you're really all in on this formula. Um, but I think the thing that works about Captain Phillips is that he is willing, still in that castaway way, to break the fuck down way further than you think Tom Hanks is going to be willing to go. Everything okay? I don't like the look of that. They're coming in fast. This is Mask Alabama. We are an unarmed freighter. We have two skiffs approaching with armed intruders. Potential piracy situation. Copy, Alabama. You should alert your crew and get your fire hoses ready. Uh, yeah, is that it? Chances are it's just fishermen. They're not here to fish. Yeah, I mean, I think I, too, was skeptical of what seemed like a vanity play where he's, like, sauntering around the mayor Scalabama and, like, checking the locks and things and then being to, like, the blue-collar crew, like, okay, I think the your coffee break is up. Time to get back to work. But then by the end of this fucking movie, you're like, holy shit. Like, this guy went for something, I would say, similar to Castaway in level of, like, physical performance. Yes. I mean, him playing being in shock at the end his entire nervous system just being gone is unbelievable like this is a movie where so i've seen it once in theaters and i got so mad at this movie and i was mad at it again for reasons i'll go into and i still my eyes welled up when hanks or when phillips just cannot speak i mean that's the power of it i am like intellectually upset with it on every level and i'm still overcome yeah. I can't wait to like for you to either for me to either convince you or you be the voice of reason. Um I think this is a very like thorny movie in terms of what it has to say about American military might and the limits of docu-realism. Um because on the one hand, it's a movie that is going out of its way, maybe in like what I think to be a slightly box-ticky way of being like, Muse and his Somali compatriots have no choice. They are under the command of a warlord. Like They need to... This is their job, to go see if they can pull off a heist, take a hostage, and negotiate to get some money so their village is not you know, massacred by this warlord. 
Um, I think the movie is setting up those parallel planes of like the two captains. I get that. Um, but I don't know that it sets up Musay in a way that's particularly sympathetic. I think it's very much like the bad guys from Black Hawk Down. Like you see a day in their life, but a day in their life of like being a bloodthirsty, you know, African warlord uh, underling. I, the, the big problem I have is that Greengrass is taking a directorial style that is all fine and good when something is blatantly fictional. Like Born Supremacy is one of the most compelling action espionage movies uh ever made for me um and it's because of the way paul greengrass directs but when you take a true story and the antagonist is a black person from east africa and the performance that you've asked all of those actors to give is like almost uniformly like bug-eyed insane and menacing um i think we're and then you film it like a documentary and it's based on a true story I think we're in troubling territory. Yes. I I do think that how clearly who's the protagonist and sometimes just like the guy who's tied up, like getting beaten uh, happens to be. And then who the antagonist and what his, because the movie, I mean, we can get into the more of the plot in a second, but the movie ends up with this interesting set of lines where Tom Hanks who has like kind of been sympathetic to Musay by saying like, Oh, he was just a fisherman whose fish were taken out. And like, this was his only recourse in terms of like making money, uh, hijacking these boats and taking the crew for ransom. But then at the end, he's like, you're not a fisherman. You're not, that's not who you are. You're a bad guy. You're a bad dude. Yeah. You're a bad, you're actually just a bad dude. And that's also like a weird moment for the movie to be like, tick, tick, we're going to kill all your friends pretty soon. Do you know the weird bit of trivia that there is another, like the same year, there was another movie about this incident? Do you know this movie? No. It's called A, it's called a Hijacking. Um, and it's a Danish movie uh, from Tobias Lindholm, who's made a couple like film festival movies that have kind of crossed over. Um but that movie is all about the negotiation of like the insurance guy or like the middleman at the company with this pirate Omar who's on the other end being like, I'm not going to listen to your bullshit, man. Like, this is what we want. And it's all a movie about communication. Um, mm. And it's really interesting that like this movie is a movie. It's a movie that in its final act, it's just a movie about force. Um, and I can't figure out whether Greengrass and the movie know that the sort of inherently disproportionate military apparatus of the U.S., like how embarrassing and like unimpeachable in its own thinking that apparatus is, whether they know, whether he knows that he's portraying something that is in its own way like evil. I think sometimes he does just because he... He's able to show how big it is, but the final shot of this movie, the pan out, is just a commercial for the U.S. Navy. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know that Greengrass realizes the omnipotent evil that he's portraying is that, but it definitely, there's something so, like, I mean, a lot of movies do this too, especially movies where the military plays a, a role, is like how the infrastructure of the military is the problem. Right. Right. 
and how like this could be solved in a variety of other ways. But then this movie sort of checks the boxes off of like, well, this couldn't have been solved any other way because they like didn't actually want to, you know, um, negotiate. And that's what I sort of fault the movie for is that there is no moment when they're on the boat where like the first thing they do is like look for the like look for the other people on the crew. Like who cares where the crew is? Like you have the boat. Yeah. What do they want? Surely what do they, they want? Wanted, want exactly. Something. Their plan to get their six million dollars or whatever they're trying to get like doesn't have any parameters. Right. And then the movie's script kind of works in all these moments where he's like, after this, I'm gonna move to America and buy a car. And he's like, What are you talking like the, the audience is like, What are you talking about? Like, you're never gonna be allowed to go to America like after this if this experience itself doesn't kill you. Well, he gets to go to Terry Hood, Indiana to be in jail. He actually yeah. does get to go. I don't think he gets to buy a car. But, like, it portrays these characters as, like, understanding that America means money and taking an American hostage can yield results. But it doesn't understand, like, the might of the American industri- military industrial thing. And it also doesn't understand the fact that, like, this country will come after you if this becomes a media story. Right. It, yeah, it's so confusing to me, and I but I do think ultimately frustrating because I've just so rarely have I seen a movie portray the uniformity with which like just a couple of destroyers are just like, well, you know what we're gonna do is just squash this like a bug because we don't squash anything any other way, um, and it's just it's so obvious in the movie like when the when the SEAL team gets there and this is like made right post Bin Laden, so you have some of that like seal team uh love affair going on but like they're just gonna kill they're just gonna lie to all those guys and kill them that's all they're gonna do that's yeah the there's never thing. really there's never a good faith attempt to like get these guys off the boat cleanly and there, then you get all the double speak too of like the really kind of american position of privilege where i wrote them all down like all the different ways that phillips and the navy um talk to the pirates um, where they try out the language of business. They're like, you're a businessman, aren't you? Like, this is what you call doing business? They try out the language of charity. We're delivering food to Africa. They try out the language of personal responsibility. You're the captain of that boat. You have to drive it safely. And they try the language of moderation, which is you had $30,000. Wasn't that enough? And all of them are so gross in this, like, you are a starving pirate whose family might be murdered you had no idea what you were getting into and now i'm going to talk to you like well surely now that we're at this point like a a man of reason would understand that i'm also a man of reason but you're gonna murder them right yeah i think it's interesting too you know and i don't think hanks does it in like a, a racist way or i mean intentionally at least but there's a question of you know, when the when they first get on the bridge, they're like, where's the rest of the crew? And Tom Hanks just responds with, oh, I'm here with you. Yeah, just like stating these sort of like obvious distracting things of like, oh, maybe we should get some water because it's going to be hot down there. Yeah, you will enjoy like my authority and then my philanthropy. That should be enough for you, right? Right, exactly. It's so interesting how he even... And I don't think the movie means it as a critique. I don't either. I think that's the thing. Like, this is, I think it is an incredibly powerful movie, but it's had the power to make me so angry two times now because it is demonstrating uh, 
I don't know how like the weight of something you rarely see demonstrated because Hollywood just kind of glosses it. But then I don't think it understands the weight of what it's demonstrating. Right. There's also a question too, like maybe this movie needs that kind of um, uh, Bong Joon-ho opening of, I mean, instead of like the vials being poured down the drain and creating the monster in the river, (laughs) something like seeing the American or like international Western owned companies like draining the fishing supply for these fishermen whose boats go out and they don't like where's the scene where they they all go out fishing and they all come back and they haven't like caught anything right and you see like a bit of desperation or a bit of like the reason they're out there is not because pirating is fun i feel like there's a bit of you know, trying to make pirate life seem like the wire where the guy, when he gets his feet caught up, like the response from Muse is like, well, if you're not tough, you're not meant to be in this game. And it's like the idea of the game, you know, it's like do the Somali pirates really, or these particular guys as portrayed by real history, like were they talking about the game? Were they going out to prove themselves or were they going out out of desperation because they had nothing else? I and I say all this. I think it actually. That being said, it's riveting. I think it is. I think it actually. I'm going to say this. I think there are several times in this movie where it is racist the way that it like depicts these pirates. Um, and it, but the movie is nothing short of riveting in the way that it's made. Um, like the the run up to the Somalians boarding the boat. Um, the chase is so incredible. I think Tom Hanks is great. I just think it's such a confused movie that has no idea what it's wielding, much like the U.S. Navy. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. And the movie doesn't quite know its way into the story, because frankly, I don't even think Captain Phillips is that intriguing of a protagonist. He's kind of like representative for the audience at one point where... You know, it's like these are the visual affronts we're being put through and like, look what we've gone through to get to the other side. But it's such folly to introduce Catherine Keener, like one of the best actors working today (laughs) as this like sort of ambivalent wife character who drops him off at the airport never to be heard from again. You know, like if you're going to put Catherine Keener in this movie, you have to give her like an afterwards. Definitely. You have to give her the true Helen Hunt treatment, as bulky as that may be. Right. It's true. And there are things, too, where like, I just don't know what the movie knows. And maybe the most insidious thing, actually, is that Greengrass knows how tragic and embarrassing it is when the pirates are just executed in mass and then hanks has the well this isn't all my blood as his like brain is trying to turn on and off but the but maybe so maybe he does know that the american military response is in its own way unjust but then doesn't have the guts to make a movie that's directly critiquing that and is totally fine letting it come off as american sniper to 90 percent of its audience yeah i think there's a version of this movie where the pretty i would say affable captain of the ship that like first reports to the kidnapping is like sort of pushed out of the way prematurely for the military might of the seals coming aboard right in this one it's like oh thank god the seals are here because we were treading water as it is right right well and you got to get the you have to get the actual u.s navy to agree to be in your movie so you probably can't do that yeah there's no moments of like hey we have this we have this covered you know, you guys can stand down your snipers. Nope. It's like, no, the situation's getting more and more out of hand. If someone doesn't get killed soon, 
what are we gonna do? The Naji character. Um, I mean, no shade on Fasel Ahmed, who had never acted before and was a Minneapolis resident, just like Barkhad Abdi. But uh, the Naji character is an embarrassment. He's just a a giant hulking man who screams. But they kind of say that up front. Like the casting of him is sort of like the narrative work that he does with like, give me somebody strong. Right. You just he's want, from another village. Literally, who the fuck knows what he's about? Yeah, who knows what this guy's up to? But that's literally like, it feels like what the crew is saying to the role too. It's like, we need someone physically imposing who could be the wild card at the tenser moments. Yeah, and I say what Sonny and Philly said in season eight, which is, Charlie, why would anybody want a wild card? It makes no sense. <laughs> I think my wild card here is this movie is a good bad. Made well technically, but hard to watch, I would say, in 2020. Right. I was I on I had the experience in 2013 of walking out of the movie theater at about the same tone. And like running into like some like younger college students that I had mentored and had the bizarre experience of them saying to me like, Chance, you're like our Captain Phillips. And I was like, don't you understand this movie is racist? And they were like, no, I thought it was fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. 2020, the year of our devil uh, and Greyhound. Greyhound, absolutely. If Captain Phillips was about a real life boat captain <laughs> escaping the clutches of Somali pirates, then Greyhound is about a real-life boat captain seeing whether or not, during a massive naval battle, he can put on his slippers. Listen, I have no problem with the way the Greyhound sensationalizes uh, Nazi radio men. Because um, it is... Ha-ha, Greyhound, we've got your water! <laughs> That was definitely like, it was like Taika Waititi on the other end of that radio. Be like, ha ha, Tom Hanks, I've got your board. Yeah. Dear Greyhound is no match for dear Grey Wolf. No, nine. (laughs) (laughs) We're only a little bit exaggerating what it's like to watch the movie. (laughs) Well, this movie makes the very quick, very strange decision to not be about anything other than the Tom Hanks character. So much so is that it's bookended with these bizarre scenes at a like very CGI New York bar. Such a where weird, yeah. Elizabeth Shue and Tom Hanks are being like, hey, you might be a stranger to me or you might be my best friend. What is our <laughs> relationship for like five or six minutes? And then... Tom Hanks incongruously proposes to her and she's like, oh, only if the sea brings you back. Right. And then he like looks. It's so sad to me when characters in movies could be replaced by close up shots of photographs. And that would be totally enough. And Elizabeth Shue, unfortunately, (laughs) is a photograph uh, as a stand in for, you know, a narrative device part. It's funny, too, the these last three movies, like the arc of digital versus practical effects where like Zemeckis like it's shot on film as you texted me and like so much of it is practical and then he uses kind of like loud digital just that one time to show the final burst over the wave and then Greengrass is like we're doing this in the fucking Indian Ocean um and then this movie <laughs> and then it's 2020 and this movie's like well I don't really know if we can find the right bar so just do computer bar and like the ocean's a yeah. little weird so just we've do already computer done computer ocean. boat why don't we do computer bar <laughs> yeah 
so yeah, as we said, this so this movie was a Sony property that was in development for a long time and was supposed to come out this summer and then got sold to Apple TV Plus. It's one of their first like major uh, movie releases. I think they're. I mean, this is just my speculation, of course, but I think they're hoping that this is one of the things where people will be like, I have to see the new Tom Hanks. Let me subscribe to this still rather nascent streaming service. Um, Absolutely. It does sort of suffer from that streaming thing of having a big name star at the center, like a Gerard Butler, if you will. uh, And then otherwise nobody else that you can really recognize save for other people from streaming things. Um, including but not limited to Sergey from Hulu's devs as the radio operator. Oh yeah. Holy shit. Well, it's got, it's got Stephen Graham and Rob Morgan who are like good character actors. Um, sure. But, but you it's really, like not anybody you've heard of. Think about the tradition. This is what I kept thinking about watching this movie was the tradition of submarine movies, um, which are just uh, fucking of Which you stacked. and I are very familiar. Yes. Yeah. Which are just stacked with like, when I think sixth build character actor in a submarine movie, I want it to be Scott Glenn and Courtney B. Vance. I do not want Stephen Graham's second build. Well, that's the thing. In movies with about strategic move around stuff and like battles and, you know, who's underwater and who's above the water, you need the two characters. You need Harrison Ford and Sean Connery. You need Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington. You can't just have Tom Hanks and then Digital Ocean. Yeah. That otherwise, you get an hour and 31 minute streaming movie. And unfortunately, Greyhound is an hour and 31 streaming movie. But you know what Greyhound is telling you. You're, you're XO Hunter saying, we really need another character in this movie. And this movie is telling you that it's captain of this boat. Now shut the fuck up! <laughs> <laughs> this movie has a moment where one of the various white young guys comes in um, and is like, hey, we're out of depth charges. At approximately the same time, this movie is like out of action sequences. Yeah. It's almost like the movie warning you that the rest of it's going to be a lot of a lot of the movie. What can we? I texted you about this for a movie about like ships blowing each other up, and maybe I've been uh, overly desensitized because of my recent watching of uh, Roland Emmerich's uh, Midway. <laughs> but like, no boats really blow up at all in this movie. Right. There's like an oil slick where a submarine might be. Yes. There's, you know, sort there's of like a little so explosion in the, in the distance. Waves. Yeah, there's like an explosion in the distance and it's like, oh, that's the dicky. This movie, the screenplay, is written by Tom Hanks. It's based on a novel called The Good Shepherd by C.S. Forrester. Not um, to be confused with the Matt Damon, Robert De Niro movie. Don't, don't confuse it with that uh, CIA Origins movie. I think you're seeing the like the understated, sad, logical endpoint of a lot of things. Where like in this movie, like Hanks is playing a, a quiet ex- man, ordinary man, put in extraordinary circumstances. But like it's almost like he he premeditated how humble it was going to be by writing the script. Right. Like liter- like every single thing he does, you can see the writing and the actor think about underplaying it. Like that's the whole character choice. Is just like I'm never going to show any emotion and then you have the real life thing again right where this is basically 
like a this is coordinates the movie. It is like a military exercise film drawn out to 90 minutes. Um and I guess on the one hand that's interesting like in a Captain Phillips sort of way like you can show how alienating war is when there's no color to it, but also like what am I watching? What's the story here? There's there's something that's happening in both Tom Hanks movies and then also I think just like action movies, like in historical movies writ large, where it's like, when did we become so averse to fiction, guys? Like there's nothing right. wrong with fucking fiction. Like Hunt for Red October is so liberated to do what it wants compared to a movie like this. Yeah, I mean, I think this movie misunderstands that the true drama, if you're not going to make it about... German uh, submarine captain versus American destroyer captain is the drama like on the bridge of this one boat where we really don't leave as it is. So I just don't understand like why everyone on the bridge with him is more or less anonymous and like his getting his slippers and his wool coat, like isn't played for a moment of levity. It's like, you better get me my wool gloves or we're going to lose the war. And it's like, that's why are you, that's such a light moment here. This should be more methodical. I feel like the movie for some reason believes it needs all these special effects when like nothing really that special needs to be affected. Like you don't need to show the depth charges going off the boat and exploding. If they are not going to hit anything that could just be like sound and you could just keep the whole, like that would have been interesting to me if we'd never left the bridge. Sure. Why not? You could feel it on every level of the movie. You could feel it with the Rob Morgan character. Rob Morgan, very good actor, um, who's like had a real like hot streak like later in life here in movies like Mudbound and Last Black Man in San Francisco. And you can feel he in this movie he's the like a cook and he just keeps trying to serve the Tom Hanks character his breakfast, him being one of the only black men on this ship. And you can feel the movie going so out of its way to be like, there was a black character on this ship and this is what his job was. And because this is real, he like never interacted with them in like any sort of meaningful way. And it's like, but that sucks to watch. You know that, right? Right. If it was just a process movie about like, because at one point he's like, oh, I couldn't make eggs because, like, the sea is too choppy. Like, I want to see that scene where he, like, endeavors to make the captain breakfast totally. and he can't because of everything going on. You know, I want to see Stephen Graham, like, running back and forth in the engine room and then, like, giving these reports in. Because you only see him, like, more and more dirty as the day goes on. But you don't see, like, really what he's doing. Or even, like, Sergey, the radio guy, like, listening to the, the radio and listening to the splashes and everything. You know, even the guy whose sole job is to just listen and to repeat something so much so that he like sneezes at one point and like threatens their existence, uh, which is pretty (laughs) funny. But it needs to be more of that. Like this one, you know more about the supporting characters in a movie like U571, which is not an extraordinary movie by any means. But but you don't know anything about these guys. Like you couldn't tell me one detail about like whomever, you know. It styled itself as like, yeah, like you said, a completely process driven movie, but like the stuff it's leaving on the table is why we watch movies. So like, what is it doing? Yes. (laughs) Show us something we haven't seen before. Like we've seen depth charges go into water and explode. 
what we haven't seen is just like what it was like to finagle this huge engine like during a tense moment in a battle yeah you know we haven't seen like what it looked like to communicate with another ship you know in the 1940s like what does that look like the visuals of pure scope, I think, are interesting. Like, I was definitely, yeah. like, leaning back on my couch when they outmaneuvered those two torpedoes in the unsexiest but so stressful way. I think that's where, you know, uh, director Aaron Schneider really was able to shine. But I don't know. After watching, having just watched Castaway and Captain Phillips, man, it is tough to watch an ocean this digital. It is, absolutely, especially after watching Captain Phillips, which is so clearly shot. I mean, sure, the digital, like, rudder moving is fine, but, like, you you couldn't actually get a crew into the water? Like, give me a break. If you're going to make a movie like this, like, what's the fucking point? Watching this just made me miss Hunter Rod October and Crimson Tide. Yeah, yeah. And it made me think that, it may, I just think that Tom Hanks at this point has sort of like outthought himself a little bit about the like, sure. about like what an everyman is. Like, I think sure. an everyman doesn't mean that you are like intentionally boring and glum. And I think that's what this movie has decided. And that's too bad. Yeah. And I think it's bad, bad. Well, I think all these other movies, at some point, the script makes the choice that this big macro action you're seeing of this huge boat maneuvering in this ocean is then replaced with physical stakes you know at no point is tom hanks's like actual space penetrated by anything from the story it's kind of a sterile movie in that way yeah i mean he might as well just be like playing a video game or something like never does like a piece of glass really even shatter near him it never felt like anyone was really there. It's going to be like commentators when baseball starts playing again. Right. It's like they're not actually going to be there. Oh, he. They're just like me muttering about what's happening on the screen. It's like an outfield single, five degrees north, 20 degrees port. <laughs> Boring. Yeah. Sorry, Greyhound. Let me ask you this then. Of the totally unnecessary female wife or fiance or girlfriend characters uh, in this movie. And and they are the girlfriend you never see from Splash, the dead wife from Sleepless in Seattle, Helen Hunt, uh, Catherine Keener, or Elizabeth Shue. Who do I think has it the best and who do I think has it the worst? Or I guess, yeah, which one do you think is most necessary? Yeah, what's their ranking in, like, most necessary to be on screen? Well, Helen Hunt is number one. She has the most to do. They get the most out of that part by kind of just letting them interact at the end. Um, I think second is probably Carrie Lowell in Sleepless because she do, you do get the dead person hallucination from Sam. For sure. Which is nice. Um, Short and sweet. But she is on screen. The girlfriend who breaks up with Alan in Splash. I don't know. Is that role more dignified than putting very talented actresses like Catherine Keener and Elizabeth Shue through such bullshit? I don't know. I think the inferred girlfriend does more narrative work in Splash than Elizabeth Shue does in Greyhound. That's fair. I think Greyhound, I think Elizabeth Shue's only role in Greyhound is to make it not a short film. 
Elizabeth Shue, the inclusion of Elizabeth Shue in Greyhound actually seems like satire of the Catherine Keener thing in Captain Phillips. Like, it's Indeed. so glaringly bad. Yes. But Keener is the best actor of those five who is given the least to do, as you said. Which is your favorite boat of the five? Mm. What a question. That would be the ferry from Splash. Or I guess one of the one of the smaller skiffs. Fat Jack's transportation service. Fat Jack's Yeah. <laughs> uh the the raft from Castaway, the Mayor Scalabama or the titular Greyhound. The ways that Greengrass visually introduces you to that cargo ship is unbelievable. Like, I think he's really a cool. really good director. <laughs> I just think he had no fucking idea what he was doing with the story. And just but, showing the vastness of, like, the engine room, too, is, like, yeah. a really... He's a, he's a good, like, visual storyteller, for he sure. Well, what about, like, when the uh, when the lifeboat falls off? Were you like, holy oh, shit, just that's like the your, lifeboat? The, your heart drops when the thing just, like, falls off oh in silence. God. Yeah. All right, man. We got to wrap it up. This was a ton of fun. Yeah, I was worried we'd get lost at sea, but we seem to have made a a bargain with the pirates. Nice. And that'll be the last thing Noah says on today's episode. I'll finish it out. Bye. Wilson! I'm sorry! I'm sorry, Wilson! Wilson, I'm sorry! I'm sorry!